Section 15 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Latin Empire of the East, Its Foundation and Fall. A.D. 1204-1261 by W.J. Broderip and Sir Walter Besant. Part 2. Gautier de Brienne was King of Sicily and Duke of Apulia. John himself, one of the last specimens of the great crusading heroes, was titular King of Jerusalem, having married Constance, daughter of Isabel and granddaughter of Amory. Philip Augustus himself selected John de Brienne as the most worthy knight to become the husband of Constance and the king of Jerusalem. He was now an old man of more than seventy years old. His daughter, Yolande, was married to Frederick II, who had assumed the title of king of Jerusalem, but old as he was, he was still of commanding stature and martial bearing. His arm had lost none of its strength, nor his brain any of its vigor. He accepted the crown on the understanding that the young Baldwin, then eleven years of age, should join him as emperor on coming of age. Great things were expected from so stout a soldier. Yet for two years nothing was done. Then the emperor was roused into action. It was understood at Constantinople that Vatatkes, the successor of Theodore Lascaris, was on the point of concluding an alliance, offensive and defensive, with Agan, king of the Bulgarians, and successor of John. The alliance could have but one meaning, the destruction of the Latin Empire. It must be remembered that the vast Roman Empire of the East was shrunken in its dimensions to the city of Constantinople, and that narrow strip of territory commanded by her walls, her scanty armies, and her diminished fleets. Of territory, indeed, the Latin Empire had none in the sense of land producing revenue. What it held was held with the drawn sword in the hand ready for use. The kingdom of Thessalonica was gone, and though the dukedoms, marquisates, the countships of Achaia, Athens, Sparta, and other independent petty states were still held by the emperors or their sons, they were like the outlying provinces of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem, Edessa, Tripoli, and the rest, a source of weakness rather than of strength. Little help, if any, could be looked for from them. The alliance, however, was concluded, and the Allies, with an immense army, estimated at a hundred thousand, besides three hundred ships of war, set down before the city and besieged it by sea and land. The incident that follows reads like a story from the history of Amadis de Gaulle. Gibbon says that he trembles to relate it. While this immense host lay outside his walls, while thirty ships armed with their engines of war menaced his long line of seaward defences in the narrow strait, brave old John de Brienne, who had but one hundred and sixty knights with their following of men-at-arms and archers, say two thousand in all, led forth his little band, and at one furious onset routed the besieging army. Probably it was mainly composed of the Bulgarian hordes, undisciplined, badly armed, and, like all such hosts, liable to panic. Perhaps, too, the number of the enemy was by no means so great as is reported, nor were the forces of John de Brienne so small. Nor was his success limited to the rout of the army, for the citizens, encouraged by their flight, attacked the ships, and succeeded in dragging five and twenty of them within the port. 
it would appear that the Bulgarians renewed their attempt in the following year, and were again defeated by the old emperor. It would have been well for the Latins had his age been less. He died in the year 1237, and young Baldwin, who was married to his daughter Marta, became sole emperor. John de Brienne made so great a name that he was compared with Ajax, Odin the Dane, Hector, Roland, and Judas Maccabeus. Baldwin, who came after him, might have been compared with any of those kinglings who succeeded Charlemagne, and sat in their palaces while the empire fell to pieces. His incapacity is proved, if by nothing else, by his singular and uniform ill-luck. If, after the fight of life is over, no single valiant blow can be remembered, the record is a sorry one indeed. Baldwin's difficulties were, it must be owned, very great. They were so great that, for a considerable portion of the four-and-twenty years during which he wore the Roman purple, his crown was left him by sufferance, and his manner of reigning was to travel about Europe begging for money. The Pope proclaimed a crusade for him, but it was extremely difficult to awaken general enthusiasm for a Courtenay in danger of being overthrown by Lascaris, and the other point, the submission of Constantinople to Rome in things ecclesiastical, could not be said to touch the popular sentiment at all. The Pope, however, supplemented his exhortation by bestowing upon the indigent emperor a treasure of indulgencies, which he no doubt sold at their marketable value, whatever that was. One fears that it was not much. From England he obtained, after an open insult at Dover, a small contribution towards the maintenance of his empire. Louis IX of France would have rendered him substantial assistance, but for the more pressing claims of the Holy Land, and his project for delivering the holy places by a new method. His brother-in-law, Frederick II, excommunicated by the Church, was not likely to manifest any enthusiasm for an ecclesiastical cause. And those allies from whom he might have expected substantial aid, the Venetians, were at war with the Genoese. The Prince of Achaia was in captivity, and the feeble son of Boniface, King of Thessalonica, the sons of all these sturdy crusaders were feeble, like the Syrian Pullani, sons of Godfrey's heroes, had been deposed. Yet money and men must be raised, or the city must be abandoned. A wise man would have handed over the empire to any who dared defend it. Baldwin was not a wise man. He proceeded to sell the remaining lands of Courtenay and the Marquisate of Namur, and by this and other expedients managed to return with an army of thirty thousand men. What would not Baldwin I, or Henry, his uncle, or John de Brienne, his father-in-law, have been able to effect with an army of thirty thousand soldiers of the West? But Baldwin the Incapable did next to nothing. By this time the strip of country remaining to the emperor was only that immediately surrounding the city. All the rest was in the hands of Greek or of Bulgarian. When these were at war, the city was safe. When these were united, the city was every moment in danger of falling. Baldwin used his new recruits in gaining possession of the country for a distance of three days' journey round his capital, about sixty miles in all, which was something. But how was the position to be maintained or to be improved? There were no revenues in that bankrupt city, from whose port the trade had passed away and which had lost the command of the narrow seas. What was the condition of the citizens we know not. That of the imperial household was such that the emperor's servants were fain to demolish empty houses for fuel, 
and to strip churches of the lead upon their roofs to supply the daily wants of his family. He sent his son, Philip, to Venice as security for a debt. He borrowed at enormous interest of the merchants of Italy, but when all else failed, and the money which he had raised at such ruinous sacrifices had melted away, and his soldiers were clamouring for pay, he remembered the holy relics yet remaining to the city in spite of the cartloads carried off during the great sack of 1204, and resolved to raise more money upon them. There was, first of all, the crown of thorns. This had been already pledged in Venice for the sum of 13,134 pieces of gold to the Venetians. As the money was spent, and the relic could not be redeemed within the time, the Venetians were preparing to seize it. They would have been within their right. But Baldwin conceived an idea so clever that it must have been suggested by a Greek, which, if successfully carried out, would result in the attainment of much more money by its means. He would give it to Louis IX of France. A relic of such importance might be pawned, it might be given, but it could not be sold. Therefore Baldwin gave it to King Louis. By this plan the Venetians were tricked of their relic, on which they had counted. The debt was transferred to France, which easily paid it. The precious object itself, to which Frederick II granted a free passage through his dominions, was conveyed to Dominican friars to Troyes, whither the French court advanced to receive it, and a gift of ten thousand marks reconciled Baldwin and his barons to their loss. After all, as the prospects of the state were so gloomy, it might be some consolation to them to reflect that so sacred a relic, which had the great advantage over the wood of the true cross, that it had not been and could not be multiplied until it became equal in bulk to the wood of a three-decker, was consigned to the safe custody of the most Christian king of France. This kind of traffic once begun, and proving profitable, there was no reason why it should not continue. Accordingly, the crown of thorns was followed by a large and very authentic piece of the true cross. St. Louis gave Baldwin 20,000 marks as an honorarium for the gift of this treasure, which he deposited in the Saint-Chapelle. Here it remained, occasionally working miracles, as every bit of the true cross was bound to do, until the troubles of the League, when it was mysteriously stolen. Most likely some Huguenot laid hands upon it, and took the same kind of delight in burning it, that he took in throwing the consecrated wafer to the pigs. And then some more relics were found and disposed of. There was the baby linen of our Lord, there was the lance which pierced his side, there was the sponge with which they gave him to drink, there was the chain with which his hands had been fettered. All these things, priceless, inestimable, wonder-working, Baldwin sent to Paris in exchange for marks of silver and then there were relics of less holiness, but still commanding the respect and adoration of Christians. These also were hunted up and sent. Among them were the rod of Moses, and a portion, alas, a portion only, of the skull of John the Baptist. Thirty or forty thousand marks for all these treasures. And it seems but a poor result of the conquest of Constantinople by the Latins that all which came of it was the transference of relics from the east to the west, nothing else such order as the later greek emperors had preserved changed into anarchy and misrule such commerce as naturally flowed from asia into the golden horn diverted and lost a strange religion imposed upon an unwilling people the break-up of the old roman forms the destruction by fire of a third of the city the disappearance of the ancient byzantine families 
the ruin of the wealthy, the depression of the middle classes, the impoverishment of the already poor, the decay and loss of learning, these were the things which the craft and subtlety of Dandolo, working on the Franks' lust of conquest, had brought about for the proud city of the East. But the end was drawing daily nearer. Vatatkes of Nicaea died. He was succeeded by his son Theodore, on whose death the crown of Nicaea devolved upon an infant. The child was speedily, though not immediately, openly dethroned by the regent, Michael Paleologus. When at length the imperial title was assumed by the latter, Baldwin thought it advisable to attempt negotiations with him. His ambassadors were received with open contumely. Michael would give the Latins nothing. Tell your master, he said, that if he be desirous of peace, he must pay me, as an annual tribute, the sum which he receives from the trade and customs of Constantinople. On these terms I may allow him to reign. If he refuses, it will be war. That was in the year 1259. Michael, no putter forth of empty or boastful words, prepared immediately for the coming war. So in his feeble way did Baldwin, but his money was spent, his recruits were melting away, the Venetians alone were his allies, and the Genoese had joined the Greeks. And yet Michael did not know, so great was the terror of the Frank and Flemish name which the great Baldwin, Henry of Flanders, and John de Brienne had left behind them, how weak was the Latin Empire, how unstable were the defences of the city. Michael, in 1260, marched into Thrace, strengthened the garrisons, and expelled the Latins yet remaining in the country. Had he, the same year, marched upon Constantinople, the city would have been his. But the glory of taking it was destined for one of his generals. The Greek emperor, returning to Nicaea, sent Alexios Strategopoulos, his most trusted general, on whom he had conferred the title of Caesar, to take the command of his armies in Europe. He laid strict orders upon him to enter the Latin territory as soon as the existing truce was concluded, to watch, report, act upon the defensive if necessary, but nothing more. Now the lands round Constantinople had been sold by their Latin seniors to Greek cultivators, who, to defend their property, formed themselves into an armed militia called voluntaries. With these voluntaries Alexius opened communications, and was by their aid enabled to get accurate information of all that went on among the Latins. As soon as the truce expired, he marched his troops across the frontier and approached the city. His force, doubtless the Latins were badly served by their spies, seemed too small to inspire any serious alarm, and the Latins, who had recently received succor from Venice, which made them confident, resolved on striking the first blow by an attack on the port of Daphnusia. They accordingly dispatched a force of six thousand men, with thirty galleys, leaving the city almost bare of defenders. This, then, was the moment for successful treachery. One Kutriozakis, a Greek voluntary, secured the assistance of certain friends within the town. Either a subterranean passage was to be opened to the Greeks, or they were to be assured of friends upon the walls. Alexius, at dead of night, brought his army close to the city. At midnight, against a certain stipulated spot, the scaling ladders were placed, where there were none but traitors to receive the men. At the same time the passage was traversed, and Alexius found himself within the walls of the city. They broke open the gate of the fountain. They admitted the Greek men-at-arms and the common auxiliaries before the alarm was given, 
and by daylight the Greeks had complete command of the land wall, and were storming the imperial palace. There was one chance left for Baldwin. He might have betaken himself to the Venetians, and held their quarter until the unlucky expedition to Daphnusia returned, when they might have expelled the Greeks, or made at least an honourable capitulation. But Baldwin was not the man to fight a lost or losing battle. He hastily fled to the port, embarked on board a vessel, and set sail for Euboia. In the deserted palace the Greek soldiers found scepter, crown, and sword, the imperial insignia, and carried them in mockery through the streets. While Baldwin was flying from the palace to the port, behind him and around him was the tramp of the rude common barbarians, proclaiming that the city was taken. The houses, hastily thrown open as the fire-streaks of the summer day lit up the sky, resounded with the acclamations of those, yesterday his own subjects, who welcomed the newcomers with cries of, Long live Michael, the Emperor of the Romans! The house of Courtenay had played its last card and lost the game. Pity that it was thrown away by so poor a player. It matters little about the end of Baldwin. He got safely to Euboia, thence to Rome, and lived twelve or thirteen years longer in obscurity. When he died, his only son, Philip, assumed the empty title of Emperor of Constantinople, which, Gibbon says, too bulky and sonorous for a private name, modestly expired in silence and oblivion. It took, however, a long time to expire. Two hundred and fifty years later, one of his last holders was the inheritor of so many shadowy claims that his very name in history is blurred by them. René of Anjou gave himself, among other titles, that of Emperor of Constantinople. Constantinople was taken, and the Latin Empire destroyed at a blow. There were, however, still remaining the Venetian merchants, who had the command of the port, and who might, by holding out until the return of the ships from Daphnusia, undo all. Alexius set fire to their houses, but was careful to leave their communications with the vessels unmolested. They had, therefore, nothing left but to secure the safety of their wives, families, and movable property, which they did by embarking them on board the ships. And when the Daphnusian expedition returned, they found, to their surprise, that the Greeks held the whole city, except a small portion near the port, and had manned the walls. A hasty truce was arranged, the merchants loaded every ship with their families and their property, the Latin fleet sailed down the Dardanelles, and the Latin empire in the east was at an end. It began with violence and injustice. It ended as it began. There were six Latin emperors, of whom the first was a gallant soldier, the second a sovereign of admirable qualities and an able administrator, the third a plain French knight who was murdered on his way to assume the purple baskins, the fourth a weak and pusillanimous creature, the fifth a stout old warrior, and the last a monarch of whom nothing good can be said and nothing evil except that which was said of boabdil called el chico that he was unlucky as the latins never had the slightest right or title to these possessions in the east so the western powers were never impelled to assist them and their downfall was merely a matter of time in the interests of civilization their occupation of the city seems to have been unfortunate they learned nothing for themselves they taught nothing neither east nor west profited 
They destroyed the old institutions, so that the ancient Roman Empire was broken up by their conquest. They inflicted irreparable losses on learning and art, and perhaps the only good result of their conquest was that, for the moment at least, it deflected the course of trade with the East from the Golden Horn and sent it by another route to Venice, Genoa, and Pisa. End of section 15